This is the What Matters Most podcast. A 100% listener-supported program. And now, here is your host, Paul Samuel Dolman. Welcome back to What Matters Most. Thank you to everyone around the world who tunes in. Appreciate you and your wonderful notes. Also, your guest suggestions, the PR people, the people who write books, you name it. What a wonderful family. Have a great show for you today. He is a family physician, a father of two. He's a community activist, and he also hosts a very interesting podcast called Healthcare for Humans. And there's a link on the page. It's a joy to welcome to the show for the first time, Dr. Rajendar. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Paul. Raj, what inspired you to go into me- medicine originally? What was the impetus, the calling? Oh, wow. Wow. We, we're going to go into my origin story, Paul. Let's do this. And I think, honestly, it's sometimes hard to communicate the extent of it. And I think you and your audience will maybe understand it a little more because you've talked about spirituality a lot here. Because sometimes I talk about the story in the wrong crowd and they kind of, when I, if I hit spirituality, they're kind of going to get lost, you know, but, <laughs> but I'll say my story really starts in a small village in Tamil Nadu. So South India, most people, when they think of India, they think of like New Delhi and North India, uh, Patels and Sings. but I'm from South India and my grandfather grew up in a village of a few thousand people. But it was a village which thatched huts, you know, uh, cows, chickens. I grew up just being part of nature. We all know that feeling you get when you're in nature. And that that's the vivid childhood memory I have. But the thing was, my grandparents pr- like grew up in poverty. So they, the poverty that you go to bed hungry. So they, at least my grandfather, who's like four foot seven or eight, decided that every person in his family is going to be a doctor. And that's how we're going to get out of this. And he made my dad, my uncles, my aunts get up at 5 a.m. studying until every day until they got into medical school and became a doctor. And they became doctors. And then that is what my parents instilled in me, which is the value of ambition and achievement. I think it's true for a lot of immigrant uh, immigrant uh, families, but it was especially true for me because this threat of poverty was always looming, especially in a country where there was no safe social safety net. And you never know like what's going to happen to you. And you figured nobody was there to have your back. Like You needed to be out there for yourself and have f- stability financially, uh, stability with your family, just stability in whatever way you can achieve it. But my parents moved to the U.S. when uh, I was really young. So I lived with my grandparents in India. By that time, we had moved to a bigger city called Chennai in Tamil Nadu. And then I came and joined my parents when I was eight or nine. But I'll say when I was growing, when I was growing up, people would ask me, what do you want to be when you want, when you grow up, like what kind of doctor do you want to be? And I thought that was a normal question of, oh, I get so many choices of like, what kind of doctor I could be? <laughs> and it became like a family trade that doctoring is a family ta- trade and you're going to be a doctor. But as I went through high school, college, medical school, essentially I was in a life of privilege now, right? I'm not 
really threatened by poverty because my both my parents were doctors here in America. I went to a private school. So all of a sudden, the values of ambition and achievement just felt like emptiness because I was chasing these transient things in life, right? Good grades, rewards for getting good grades, like me getting really excited to get a PlayStation when I was in high school or getting in medical school and then getting into the residency I wanted. So all of these achievements kind of were so transient and made me feel empty at the end of the day. And the question that I had to ask myself was like, what are my core true values and what kind of person do I want to be in this world? And what kind of impact do I want to make? And I, I use that word impact carefully, Paul, because you know it can all of a sudden become about external success in yourself. And I think you, you know, part of your journey was trying to figure out what matters most. That's the name of this podcast, in your book, and these conversations. And and the core of me, I was trying to figure that out for myself. And everybody has that journey for themselves. But for me, it was a, a spiritual journey. And I I grew up in a Hindu household. And then I uh, am now go to a Episcopal church, which for people who don't know, it's like diet Catholicism. So not not as serious, but you know, kind of formal. Uh, but I but I love Buddhist philosophy. And I've done, you know, the 10-day meditation retreats. And there's there's part of mindfulness with meditation of being present. But what really, really stuck with me during that journey was the second part of how to live life and a bigger aspect of being kind as one of the biggest goals. And then dwelling deeper into that you know the buddhist idea of like what does love mean both with karuna and mudita with like sympathetic joy like being happy when others are happy and then relieving others people's suffering not in a paternalistic i'm going to save you kind of way but like we're gonna, we're in this together and i want all of us to experience joy together so that reoriented me to try to be a better better kind of doctor i won't say no value judgment a different kind of doctor in the way I show up for my patients. So that that's the journey. That's part one of my journey of how, what kind of doctor I'm aspiring to be right now, Paul. <laughs> that's beautiful. And you're so clear. So you've obviously done a lot of work on it. And I wonder woven in all that, and even now today, and as you move through the world, do you feel a generational burden? Like you're also, those grandparents are in the backseat of the car. You're carrying the family name, the family expectations. You're the evolution of those poor folks back there in Southern India. And some generations back, you'll never even know. Do you carry that? Yeah, it's. I think about how we all carry our ancestors with us. I think we underestimate that because there's a special feeling that I get when I go back to the village. I can't describe it. It's just, it feels a part of me. And I, I do think about what is that? what does that mean for my life going forward? And what does that mean with uh, the idea of legacy, not in carrying the name forward? And, you know, when people hear the Sundar name, I don't want people to ask themselves, oh, are they well-respected? Are they well-known? You know, that is the sense that I grew up with. Again, that was part of my story, but more like what past and experience did they bring with them and my family and the struggles and suffering they've experienced? And how has that made me me? Right. That's an important part of my creation. We need modern medicine. I wouldn't go to a shaman if I fell out of a tree and broke my arm. What are some of the upsides of the modern medicine paradigm 
but also I see a lot of downsides and we can get to that too. And you're obviously very conscious. How do you navigate both? Cause it's such a uh, wicked profit driven machine, pharmaceuticals. If you just even walk in the door here, you know, kind of like trick or treat. How do you navigate all that with all your awareness? I know like there's, there could be a immediate honest answer and say painfully navigate it. Uh, and being aware of it is important because we all react in so many different ways when systems bigger than us are giving us no choices. And it feels like that in medicine because, Paul, I talk about all these big things and caring and loving people. And then at the end of the day, I have 15 minutes with you in a whitewashed clinic room and you're going to show up. And I got to do a lot of things in those 15 minutes before I can get home and see my kids, <laughs> right? So there's like all of these pressures that I experience. So I think of somewhat a little bit of like compartmentalizing of one level where I want to advocate for change and make things better and think of this big picture. And that that requires work outside of my daily job of seeing patients patient visits. And then my second part is like, I'm in this system, I'm going to accept it, I'm going to do this in the best way I can, and caring for people. And I want to figure out what that looks like. And I, I felt like I needed to do that. Because if I don't compartmentalize the change advocacy part, I just meet every day with such frustration, that I'm not showing up in the way I want to. And I can't just accept everything because then I'll forget that things need to change. Like, yes, I made this 15 minutes the best I could and the best experience we both could have in this moment. But at the end of the day, we need to figure out how we can be better and caring for people. Should we have universal health care like every other industrialized, conscious, kind country? Is that a leading question, Paul? <laughs> it's a tad, isn't it a tad? Is it almost rhetorical? Yeah. Uh, yes. Right. I could, that's all I need to say. Why shouldn't everybody have health coverage? And I think when people try to ask that question at a bigger policy level, they end up asking the actual question of is healthcare a right or not? And some people think it's not. And I would unequivocally say, yes, it is a right. Why don't we have it then? Wow, pal, we're going to dig into this. <laughs> uh, there's probably a lot of different facets to us, but I will say you mentioned the profit-driven economy and capitalism because there's so many entrenched players in healthcare, right? There's a saying that every cost is somebody's profit. So we think healthcare is super expensive, costs trillion dollars. We're not getting the outcomes we want, but those trillion dollars are somebody's profit and they are entrenched in the system to make it exist the way it is and status quo. And they're going to convince you this is the best way to do it because universal healthcare, do you know how long the lines are in Canada and UK? Do you know nobody can get joint replacements? Do you know you won't be able to get the medicine you want because they won't pay for all the medicine? And all of a sudden you're like lost in the weeds and you're worried about things that could happen and forgot the original question. Like, should everybody have the right to healthcare? And we all know how easy it is to deal with an insurance company and how they cover everything and you can always get the medicine you need. Yeah, exactly right. At the end of uh, yeah, in the end, they don't even do that. But there's there's this overwhelming fear of 
government-controlled panels of deciding everything for you. And you know, you know how much we hate government, right, Paul? <laughs> and I think was it in one of your episodes where you talk about uh, renaming taxes and investments? Because th there's so so much terminology, right? Like, because when you say government, especially in America where we are, it's the first reaction is fear for a lot of people because they're going to do something without uh, without your permission. Like, you have no free will. And that that's a that's a hard place to start with saying it's universal health insurance and the government will help doing that. I had a funny conversation at the end of last summer with some very rich people who really didn't want to pay taxes because and they had so much money, but they were saying, We're libertarians. We're libertarians. We think the government should stay out of things. So I said, Oh, really? Okay, so no FDA for your food, meat, whatever. If you get sick and die, whatever. No, well, no, we need that. Okay. What about the FAA? Planes, just the free market decides who lands. And if you cry, no, 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 we need that. I went down about 15 things and finally they're like, all right. I said, you're just greedy as shit and want to keep more money. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have a lot of expenses. We pay a lot, you know, but out of them. I don't think I'll ever have lunch with them again. I don't think I'll be invited back, but. <laughs> I love that anal analogy of free market airplanes. Here, you can either pay $400 for a flight or $15, but you could die 50% of the time. But it's $15, you know, it's cheap. The good news is the windows are open. There's plenty of air, you know. <laughs> so if you could breathe, bring your own <laughs> gas mask, you know, yeah. rugged individualism. Where does your sense of community activism come from? And how do you even fit it into everything you have going on? That's a hard question. And I, it's this is part two of my story because, you know, I I, I felt like, okay, I got to be a better person or a different person in caring for people. And that's really anchored in love and generosity. And the fact is that I am not able to do that in the way I want right now. And what can I do to change that? So at a at a bigger level, that's my hope in the time and energy we, we have, I have with two kids and all of the other things that I do in my life. And then that, that also looped into like where I was really hitting a barrier when caring for diverse communities or immigrants or people with different values. I'm like, man, I'm just getting stuck here. Like, I want to care for you. I want to love you. I want to be generous in this interaction. I just don't know how. And everywhere I look, like the first time I'll say I was caring for this um, Cambodian um, woman who was like 80 year old who had body pain everywhere. She's gone to so many doctors and they said, oh, I mean, there doesn't seem to be like there's anything wrong. So she kept coming back, but I felt like we weren't caring for her because we just kind of dismissed her saying she just has body pain. But I knew there was so much to that and there was a past to that. Even if she didn't share, I was like, okay, there's, we know that Khmer population has gone through something together. So I would like read up, try to read about it. There's a whole thing about cultural competency. But then when you read about it, it's like very superficial, right? Like, hey, Cambodian people like to say hi this way. They dress this way. And these are the three values they hold. And it was so black and white and simplistic. And it didn't get me where I wanted to be. So that's why I was like, I'm just going to go and talk to the community leaders and ask them, like, what does it mean to care for your community and what should I know about it? And that helped me in my journey. And though things like that, you know, Paul, you asked, like, how do I have the energy or time to do that? It gives me more energy because we all know there's some tasks 
that just give you more energy on net and some are draining but things like this really sustain me in all my endeavors and you have children and once you had that first child did you feel an inner shift towards i guess a greater concern and a desire to invest in whatever future we're going to have here on this planet was that innate did you or were you conscious of that or did it manifest unconsciously or at all yeah look at this i told you there's you have some good questions <laughs> i i feel like when you have kids you can either contract or expand contract because now you have two kids and you're responsible for them and you got to protect them so who cares about the rest of the world we got to make sure my kids are safe my kids get the best education my kids succeed in this so trying to get as many moments of that as possible and i really love what you what you do with you know washing the dishes and paying attention and i should do that more but i'm also get really excited to listen to podcasts now so it's like i'm going to listen to this podcast and i am excited to do the chores so i i like that feeling so right now i'm just going into that to uh fulfill a part of me that likes learning and growing which sometimes i don't get as much as they want to well i have to own in full disclosure i listen to podcasts all the time i never turn the tv on hardly ever and i podcasts go with me everywhere i just find everything interesting and it's the greatest way to learn to listen and walk around listen to you or so many other people there's so much great stuff out there and you can be walking around the lake or shopping or eating breakfast and listening and it works. How, when did you decide, hey, I want to do one? For all the reasons that you mentioned, because I love podcasts and I was listening to it so much. And I was like, hey, like, I wonder if I should create one because of the problem that I was experiencing, Paul. Going back to my part two, I was like, and all these online articles are very reductive, black and white kind of stereotypical and are not really helping me. And I decided to reach out to community leaders, but then I also knew how powerful voice can be in sharing and capturing the nuances in learning. And you know this more than anybody. You've been in the business of voice business. In a, I don't mean that in a negative way. Uh, just understanding the power of conversation and voice uh, to understand difficult ideas, ideas that's hard to capture when you write it down. So I decided I was going to try to do this thing of podcasting because I listened to it. And it's, it's a really interest. It's been an interesting journey. And you've been you've made like 1000 episodes, Paul, I'm like an episode 15. So <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, I'm just starting out here. Uh, but I think there's two parts of this that's been really interesting for me. One is the content itself which I just talked about, you know, amplifying the voices of the community and helping bridge the gap between people who are living in the community and doctors or clinicians and hospitals and clinics. And voice has been excellent at capturing that so far. And I feel like it's been impactful. And then the form of podcasting itself, I personally at least find it a way to be creative because in healthcare, creativity is not really uh, something you aspire to be. <laughs> Uh, it's about algorithms. It's about structure. Uh, and just your creative spirit kind of slowly fades or dies out. And I've, I've found podcasting has helped me to be creative again and listen in a different way. As we talked about earlier, like really think about some questions of like, 
what what does asking good questions means? Uh, and then how do you how do I speak in a way that people want to pay attention to? Not in a way of trying to sell myself, but just like bringing my own voice because it's so easy. Again, I, I feel like I'm talking to the perfect person here. <laughs> when you first start out or when you're in public, you get this artificial persona because you think you should be something, right? Right. Like you're like your voice changes into like some weird, either it's like monotone or like very dramatic in a way that's not you. And you're, for me, it was like very airy. I'll be like, this is Raj Sundar. And I'm like, <laughs> then I would listen to it. I'm like, wait a minute. Like, what am I doing? <laughs> like, I just got to be myself and trying to like find that voice within me has helped me in other places too. So this podcasting. So now when I'm in clinic, I'm like really thinking about what do good questions mean when I'm trying to understand this person's journey? Or like, how do I express myself in my voice to capture everything I'm feeling? Not just like, oh, like, sounds like you have ankle pain. You know, here's some medicine. You know, like, it's easy because I'm also looking at the computer so I don't pay attention to my voice. But it's it's made me rethink some of these things. So it's been helpful. I'm laughing too because it's so true, and I don't ever go back and listen to my first shows. They're hard. They're funny. They're they're. But because I didn't think it was a real show, I thought it was just going to be a good way to do bits and jokes. And you know, I have eight people that listen. I could play for my friends, and then I knew some people that were well known. They're like, "Hey, I want to come on." I'm like, "No, you really don't. You haven't listened, obviously." But then it took off, and you do learn. And I was kind of like Fredo in The Godfather at the beginning, like I'm smart. <laughs> I'm smart. I had to prove, and I was like, "Just shut up. You have nothing to prove, and just let it happen, and be in the flow." And then, what I love is, I would have never met you if I hadn't done this, and so many other people. I want to go to Europe, and I'm going to go see the people over there that were on the show or listen. And if I'm ever in Seattle, we can have coffee. And without the show, it became a conduit and a lighthouse to meet just the most wonderful people, my real tribe, my spiritual family. Yeah. And it's a way to connect people directly. So I I just talked to somebody from Australia, New Zealand, UK, and that direct engagement that social media is supposed to give us, you know, I say supposed to in Twitter world, all this, it's it's doesn't do it justice, right? Like when we're talking like this, the amount of information we can share with each other and the transformation that I feel like happens within myself when I talk to people in this way across the world is different from if I'm like on Twitter and somebody tweets 140 characters at me. <laughs> I don't know if you're on Twitter. I'm not fully engaged there, but sometimes I learn things. So, okay. <laughs> so I'm off and on on there. And the more you do this, you're going to connect with people around the world and you're already meeting people and having to become your extended family. Ross, are you afraid to die in the physical form? You know, it's inevitable. Do you have fear around it? Or is it, I mean, beyond just, oh, I want to be here to see my kids. I want to make sure they're safe. But what about your own temporality? Are, does that trouble you? Or do you see yourself much more than these brilliant, miraculous carbon particles that have come together and decided to have a story and grow up in Southern India? I know. I feel like every meditation, where it's, whether it's with Buddhism or Stoicism, you meditate on death a lot and so much of death is just accepting that it'll happen and then you become freer i don't i don't think i really hold a fear of death of like oh no like i'm scared this moment's gonna happen to me 
nor oh, I, I won't have achieved everything that I'm set out to be like this incompleteness that people sometimes struggle with with death there's like I because you know I've seen death in many forms and people who have the hardest time dying or people who haven't lived well they feel like things have been incomplete so they're holding on because there's something more they need right so I don't like the more I have come to myself from the in this journey of you know letting go of ambition achievement and really focusing on love and generosity it has become less uh important to me I think what really makes me scared of death is just my family because of the relationships I hold with them and what that would feel like for them. And I don't know, that 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 makes me feel really uncomfortable. I don't think I fully understand it um, and probably can't articulate it in this moment, but that's what I think about. It's bizarre to even contemplate, isn't it, that we know we're temporary and that we came in and we go out. It's a mystery what we are. And then, oh, and then carry on and try to do all this linear stuff. The more I woke up to all that, actually, once I woke up to it, I felt like all my ambition kind of went away. Even though the ambitious aspect, the ego still lurks within me. He's always pitching me ideas. It's like trying to accumulate prizes in a dream when you know you can't take it back with you. It seems rather futile. You'd almost want to relax and, and enjoy the experience of the dream. And yet I have to remind myself, of that constantly, constantly forget because it's so compelling. It's so realistic, which thus makes it effective. It's an excellent movie. And, but that balance, it's really tough to be able to hold the, the um, mortality space, the turn eternal aspect of yourself at one and fully be here. And a lot of people think, think if you do that, you would then just be nihilistic or hedonistic and you could go that way. Or just go into the fetal position in the dark room and give up. I have those thoughts. But then life ventures on. It's There's the sunshine. There's the donut. There's people. There's the incredible piece of music. But I have to remind myself it takes energy and will. But to try to hold all that is really beautiful and challenging. I know. Because I think once you accept that, Paul, don't you? I feel like there's a choice point. And it, this is a little black and white. Black and white. Either you could decide nothing matters because nothing seems to matter, or you could decide everything matters and that you decide every moment should be important in its own way. And you need to be loving, kind, and caring because this is all there is. Uh, and trying to move towards that ladder, I feel like is very important to me. And I, I liked how you also phrased about this constant reminder about the meaning and not getting lost in this reality that keeps propelling us forward with ambition and um because I, I think when i first got into meditation especially vipassana it feels like i'm gonna get to a place then i can forget about it like all of a sudden i'll be enlightened and realized and then i don't have to think about it again but rather than like, again, making meditation a form of achievement, which is what that felt like, is thinking about, well, I've had these moments already, and I just have to remind myself and realize it again, of where I'm connected to this world in a different way. Everything is a dichotomy, like nothing does matter. But yet everything is sacred. So go figure that those two out together. Like everything, 
is so sacred. Like, why would I kill something if I could just catch it and release it out into the wild? You know, even a bug or why would I shoot something so beautiful as, as an animal for no reason? Why would I be cruel for no reason? And yet everything is temporary and it's just going to go ashes to ashes, dust to dust. And Eve, everything, everything we create, you can put your name on the biggest building or in granite, it's gone. So it doesn't matter either. I had a monk or somebody once said, uh, both things are true. It's like, does the sun set in the West? Obviously. But if you're in space, the sun never sets. Is that true? Yes. So, and then the mind just shuts down. It's like a computer, you know, that was, can't handle it. I'm linear. Leave me alone. Uh, and I think you brought up ash to ash, dust to dust. You know, we do that in Ash Wednesday with uh, because I go to church, Episcopal Church. And I do like the part of Christianity that has been meaningful to me is the rituals, because it's like a constant, like a seasonal way of reminding yourself, <laughs> like showing up to Ash Wednesday and getting dust on your face saying, hey, you're going to turn to dust. <laughs> like if you haven't realized this, and we've told you this every year, and you're supposed to remember it all throughout the year, if you don't, here's a reminder again, in a very physical way. So some of those rituals, I think especially with Episcopal Church, I told people, you know, it's kind of like Catholicism. There's certain uh, cadence to uh, events, seasonality. I think it keeps me anchored uh, in a way that has been meaningful to me. I just interviewed a billionaire. I think that show comes out in the next couple of days. And he's giving all his money away, not, you know, just dropping it from a plane, but very, very consciously and trying to get other millionaires and billionaires to do the same. But it's really hard. And I said, why do they hoard so? And don't they realize they're going to die? And he says, no, no. They honestly think they're never going to die, that they're going to live forever somehow. And he was serious. And that's what part of their delusion, their neurosis, like a cancer cell. Oh, no, I'll survive the body's death. And they keep hoarding. It's a disease. It is fascinating. And I, I wonder, I'm trying to incorporate that into my understanding of growing up in India too, where I told you because there was no social safety net, people hoarded money whenever they could. Cause not, it's not only for yourself, but it's also for your family because you're going to pass this on to the next generation of your kids. There's this loyalty to lineage in your own, own family to the detriment of the rest of the world. Um, I mean, I don't know if billionaires think that way. I'm not one. So <laughs> it's like, that's why everybody has a trust, I guess, once you have a billionaire. Maybe it's just to avoid paying taxes. I don't know. <laughs> it's sad, really, because we have, I just was thinking the other day that if a person has 50 cats, we think she's crazy or he's crazy. We try to get him help. If we went to an, another person's house and they had like 30 years of newspapers piled up and you couldn't move through it, same thing. It's mental illness. They need help. But the people that hoard billions, hundreds of billions of dollars, we put them on the covers of magazines and glorify them. It's the same dynamic. Of course, they own those same magazines in the media that tells us how great they are. A few people own the whole world, right? <laughs> what would you say to the young person or, well, yeah, I'm going to think young person who's just getting out of high school or college right now that's feeling like, what is my place in all this? It sure looks pretty bleak between the environment, the rise of fascism, the economy. How do I find my flow? How do I find my inner voice? How do I find my place in this world? What What would you say to them? I got to take a, take a minute here because I think about this question a lot for my own kids. 
because you're constantly trying to figure out how do I instill values that feel true to them, but also things that I've learned about the world <laughs> um, and the best part of me to them. And I I come keep coming back to just being really intentional about the beliefs you hold and the values you've chosen. Because we all have chosen certain values. And I think, especially in America, certain values become imposed on you because of culture, media, and the world. And you think that's normal. And that's the only way to live life. And that can be any number of things, right? Success, external success, accumulation of things because you want status, you want respect. But trying to separate yourself from that um, and finding way to increase the love, generosity, and joy in the world. And what does that really look like? Because no matter what my kids do or what the younger generation do, everybody will bring something different. But if our intentions are in a place that's grounded in that, I feel like we'll have a better world. You've been listening to the What Matters Most podcast, a 100% listener-supported program. If you feel inspired, please go to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash whatmattersmost and join our family. So until the next time, stay inspired and in the light.